0: Welcome to the Opawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. I think communion is quite special. There's something about reenacting this thing that we've been doing now for nigh on 2,000 years and with I think one possible exception pretty much every tribe and there's some pretty strange tribes of Jesus around the world between now and then including ourselves have done. It's a binding thing and if you study Christian history or theology you'll see that much ink has been spilt on what the significance of this thing is. But I think for, from a Baptist point of view, this isn't a, a particular sacrament. There's not a pipe running from here to God when we take communion together. It's that when two or three, or 50 or 60 as we are today, are gathered together in the name of Jesus, he's here with us. That's the specialness. That's the sacrament. But I don't know about you but I noticed that when we gather around this table there's a sense of of awe and of intimacy with God and with each other and it's a neat thing to do so thank you. Today is the first in a series of sermons on Jesus' teaching to run up until Palm Sunday just before Easter. And I, I look back um, a little while ago over the years that I've been doing this gig of pastoring and preaching and I notice that invariably at the start of the year it's the Gospels that dominate what I've done. And I think I've reflected on that really if we truly believe that Jesus was God who became one of us, who walked among us, then actually what he said and did is pretty critical. So hence the focus and hence at the start of the year. We want to know what he said, and what impact that has for us. I'm going to be talking about the parable of the dishonest manager from Luke 16, if you've got your phone, Bible, or other device with you and want to follow along. Uh, It's described as notoriously one of the most difficult parables to interpret. Let me show you what I mean. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned them and said to him, well, What's this I hear about you? Give me an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now? Now that my master has taken this position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. Know how he feels. And I'm ashamed to beg. Yep. I've decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? And he answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into their eternal homes. Told you it was strange. So our model citizen here got into trouble because he was bad at his job bad at managing his master's business. He was sloppy. He was careless. When the time came to give an account, he didn't fall on his sword and fall hard. He didn't repent, say sorry, beg for mercy, do any of that stuff. He thought, well, the game's almost up. Better look after number one because no one else is going to. I know what I'll do. I'll go around and I'll write down the debts owed to my master, shrink them a bit, And that way, those debtors will look after me when I lose this job. I'll fiddle the books so that the debts will be smaller than they really are. eh? His debtors will look after me because they'll owe me big time. So not only is he bad at his job, but he dishonestly gives away his master's money. But then his master commends him for his shrewdness. So, should we be really sloppy and dishonest? And then Jesus will say nice things about us too. Well done, good and faithful servant. Sounds a little unlikely, doesn't it? I think generally we want our heroes to be good and our villains to be bad, but this story doesn't easily fit within that mould. Let's pray I may need it. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, for all that you have taught us from its pages, for the light that you shine into our lives through it. Teach us and show us your truth today, that we might be your true sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you'll hopefully be glad to hear that I'm going to spare you the details of the six major theories about what this parable is trying to say because I think there are really only two that are worth talking about. And the first is that the Jews were forbidden in the Old Testament to lend money with interest, right? It was the sin of usury. Now, you think about how our world operates. That's a big commercial problem. Why would you lend somebody money, take the risk of them losing it for you for no return? If everything goes well, you just get your money back in a thank you. No interest, no share of the profit, nothing. Makes no financial sense. So much like modern retailers, the ancients who, off, who offer interest-free terms, they hid it. So what the ancient Jewish financiers would do would say they might lend $1,000, but they would convert that money into the equivalent of olive oil, or some other commodity. Say $1,000 would be equal to 100 litres of olive oil if olive oil at that point in time was 10 bucks a litre. Do the maths, it works. But then they would add on another 20 litres to the debt to reflect the hidden interest component. So it would be 120 litres. And because the price of olive oil fluctuates a bit, goes up and down, no one later on would be any the wiser that there was hidden interest in this contract. And all this dealing is done a, a bit removed. They're done by managers, like the man in the story. So if it ever comes out, the lender can say, oh, goodness, no, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't lend with interest, wouldn't do that. That was that manager, he was very poor. He doesn't work for us anymore, you'll be glad to hear. So in this scenario what the dishonest manager was doing was going around and writing off the interest component on the basis that he had illegally charged interest and he was putting it right. The rich man couldn't do anything about it because if he put the charge back on, it would be seen to be openly charging interest. The manager had him in, the, in this perfect bind and the rich man had to acknowledge his shrewdness even though he was being done in the eye. Maybe this is right. But my theory is that the manager was just trying to use his remaining authority to conceal the size of the debts from the rich man. Now, in accepting the fraudulent writing down of the debts, the debtors would have to look after him because otherwise he would tell the rich man what the true level of the debt should have been. It's creative accounting. Whatever, which we still have, whatever the exact economic rationale for what he did and we don't know for sure we do know that he misused his position to provide for his own future at the expense of his master the rich man he was both dishonest and shrewd okay so what was the point that Jesus was trying to make Well, we know that parables are very simple teaching tools. They've got one point, maybe two. If you look closely at what Jesus actually says in the story, what he goes on to say, his point becomes a little clearer. Start by reading the parable closely. What does the master praise? He praises the manager's shrewd action. He doesn't mention the dishonesty. It's his shrewdness, his cleverness that he admires. What was shrewd about what he did? Well, he used someone else's money to provide for himself when his employment ended. He created his own superannuation scheme, if you like. Now Jesus says in verse 8 that the people of the world are shrewder in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light, than you and me what's more, it's true. Some senior business managers have what's called golden parachute clauses in their contracts, which says that should the company be taken over or they be no longer required and they have to quit, they take a very large redundancy payment with them. We had a friend who was a senior manager in a major New Zealand company, and they shifted the head office from one part of the country to the other. She didn't want to go. They gave her a couple of million bucks because that was in her contract. Good work if you can get it. Sadly, I don't have a clause like that in my Terms of Call document. I've been at them for some time, but it doesn't look likely. Is there a similarity between the dishonest manager and us? I think there is. You see, we are the managers and stewards of God's money and resources. Everything in the world is the Lord's and everything, especially in God's kingdom, is his. Your money is God's money. If you're an Anglican, they have this great prayer in the liturgy, of your own we give you. If you're a Baptist, we have this song, I surrender all. Not I surrender a bit, or I surrender the change. We believe that, don't we? We're just stewards. It's not our fresh new oven out there, it's God's. He can come have a barbecue if he wants. So like the manager, we have our master's money to manage. And also like him, one day we'll be fired. What do I mean? Verse 9 Jesus says, use worldly wealth. That's like um, dishonest wealth. It's like filthy lucre, that sort of phrase. To gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. When will all that wealth be gone? When might we be looking for some eternal real estate? When we die. We will die. Our role here on earth as his steward will come to an end. How can we gain friends for ourselves in eternity with the money that we have on earth? Well, we can create our very own eternal superannuation scheme. The ultimate golden parachute. By being generous with God's money that he has entrusted to us. Matthew 25, a few um, in in Matthew's gospel, tells us that whatever we do for the starving, the sick, the imprisoned, we do for Jesus. Jesus. If we look after the poor here on earth, he will care for us in eternity. We'll be able to hang out at his house. If we give to mission, we will have friends in high places that will look after us as well. If we help others in their journey of becoming Christian and growing as disciples, they will be our mates too. For example, some of you that give to support our Transcend workers and other mission agencies enable them to do work overseas overseas full-time global ministry. There will be many people in heaven because of that ministry that you will never even have met or heard of or know about. But you will if indirectly through that giving have blessed them. They will welcome you into their eternal dwellings. You'll be their eternal friends, barbecue at their place. Then in verse 10, Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? Again, reading that, it's very clear not the manager's dishonesty that Jesus is holding up as an example. How we perform as stewards of money will determine how much responsibility Jesus gives us. So if you are a student or you're unemployed, sitting there thinking, go Rod, stick it to those rich people because, well, we don't have any money, so it's not our problem. Well, this applies to you too. Because if you spend all your money on yourself, then why would he give you more? You'll just blow that too. If you can build a habit of generosity and looking out for the needs of others now, you will be a much better steward when you get a real job with real money. When I left university last millennia, 1990, I got a job. I imagined that 30,000 years would be absolutely luxury because I've been living on 10 grand a year up until that point. It's a while ago. But what i found is it's really easy for your uh, standard of living to tag with your income or just sit slightly ahead of it, actually. You know, you don't want to be a student forever, five nights a week of mint surprise. Get gets stale. Giving needs to be a feature of your life, no matter what stage of life you're at. And Jesus goes on to say, No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. The verse says, if we love God, we will despise money. Is that really true of us? You know, money... Be our master if we let it. What we believe is what we do not... Sorry, I've got a grammatical... <laughs> is what we believe that we are stewards reflected in how we live, and how we treat this stuff? Or is it just one of these little polite fictions that we tell ourselves, we aren't hung up on money, you know, we're just stewards... Wonderful people. The Pharisees' problem was well, they were trying to love money and God at the same time. They were worshipping the creation, created thing, not just their creator. Not something we'd ever do with it. We're stewards, aren't we? It's not God's money, is it? You know, we live in a world that worships this stuff kilometre away from here, a couple of these buy myself a woman for an hour what kind of world is that a world that puts a price on everything but a value on nothing it's a world I think that worships these things but we don't worship them do we no we don't do we Do we worship them? You sure? How many people had an emotional reaction to the death of my little $50 note? Come on, own up. Come on. This is little AL 1838, or was, 18385120. Spiritus Sanctu. Would you have had the same reaction if I spent 50 bucks on junk food? No, you wouldn't lie, lie, lie. $50 on comics. $50 on a subscription to Girlfriend magazine. Yeah, okay, maybe. Why is money so special? Do you know what I've just done? It's actually illegal to do what I've just done. You're not allowed to destroy money. How weird is that? If we are only stewards of God's money, then why are we so sensitive about it? Why did so many of you have a little kink in your gut as you watched little 120 go up in flames? She's still burning, actually. I think we've got a huge blind spot when it comes to the folding stuff. As a pastor, I've had incredibly deep talks with people about what they were going through. It has been my privilege that people have opened up to me about their marriages, their fears for their kids, broken relationships, struggles with sexual temptation, abuse, the whole gamut of stuff, really, really, really painful stuff. But I have never had a conversation with anyone who's come along and said, Rod, I make 50 grand, I give away two, do you think that's enough? blow me down, you'd knock me over with a feather if that happens. Because what we earn and what we do with it are kind of taboo. We'd rather talk about our most painful memory than our personal finances. I think the love of money is the least confessed sin in the Western church. If you want to stop a conversation, dear, three people chatting, go just bowl in and say, so how much do you guys make? Gosh, this is a nice house. What'd you pay for it? When I started the Department of Social Welfare in 1990, they used to have what was called the Stud Book, which is a, a book about this big. It had every single public servant in it. it, had their name, date of birth, highest qualification, their job, and what they made. So you go to this interdepartmental meeting, and someone would annoy you, and you come back and leaf through the Stud Book to see how much they're getting paid don't have that anymore. Not at all. Most pastors will tell you the sermon they dread is not the one about sin, righteousness and judgment. It's the annual sermon on giving. Feel like you're walking on eggshells. Not, Not with you, my friends, but others. There are a number of different ways, I think, that money binds us. If I reflect on my own experience... I think for me, I derive security from money and that's my struggle with it. I don't care about the toys, but I like the choices that having a positive bank balance gives me. It's wrong. I'm not putting my trust in the Lord. That's my temptation and always has been. It could could be that we chase after the stuff, the toys that it buys, if you've been around long enough, you might remember there was a bumper sticker which said whoever dies with the most toys wins. Wins what? Biggest estate sale? Cool. Or it could be a measure of our value. Some people put great store in their salary as a measure of who they are. I'm feeling pretty good about myself at fifty grand a year, but if I get to hundred, I'll be just brilliant. It's a measure of our worth. We have to actively break free from slavery and stay free. We cannot be both, now died, the slave of God and of money. Doesn't work. Jesus says you've got how many masters? One. One. Your master owns you. They don't share you with others. You're their property. They're jealous of you. They're jealous of anyone else you run after. What we have to do, I think, is very simple. Take a cue from the shrewd manager. We need to give it away to the poor, the needy, and the kingdom as part of our lifestyle. And if we can do that, we will know freedom from its slavery. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that in different ways we are slaves to money. Help us to be generous with it so that we would be your slaves instead. That people would see that you are generous and gracious because they see those qualities in us. Amen. Thank you.
1: Now, this is a new song to us and maybe a new song to some of you. So um, if you don't know it, allow it to um, soak in. Um, if you do know it, feel free to sing. Um, but the words are beautiful. Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise We could ever breathe Worthy of every breath We could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above Every other name Jesus, the only one could ever say, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you, we live for you. Holy, there is no could ever see Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe.
0: We live for you
1: Jesus the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever save Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you, we live for you Holy, there is no one like you There is none beside you Fill me with your heart and lead me In your love to those around
0: me I invite you to stand. I'm going to finish our service with a benediction. Let us go forth into the world in peace. And dedicated to your service, O Lord, let us hold fast to that which is good, render to no person evil for evil, strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the needy and the afflicted and honor all people. Let us love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of His spirit, and may God's blessing be upon us and remain with us always. Amen. Thank you.